Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. We're continuing our Advent uh, and Christmas sermon series in Jeremiah. We're looking at the various aspects of Messiah revealed through the prophet Jeremiah. And we're in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 17 today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal, Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me, and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So while I was in high school, I got to do a course as a student with the National Outdoor Leadership School. Uh, and it, this is 
prior to GPS, and I'm, I'm not sure to what extent they still they make use of GPS, but at the time, uh, you had to be very conscious of where you were, because you're, you're out in the wilderness, and you're finding your way with map and compass. And we used what are called uh, topographic maps. So it's a projection of the area that you're traveling through that uses uh, brown lines written onto the, um, onto the map to show you uh, features. And so with these lines, if you've got a bunch of them close together, kind of making circles, that's, that's a peak. And if you're in a more of a valley or a, a flat space, they're going to be very spread out and very separated. And you use these to figure out, okay, if, if I'm here and I can see that mountain over there and I can see that mountain over there and I'm going to use my compass to determine the angle from each of those mountains and I draw lines on the map from those mountains, I can pinpoint exactly where I am. Well, as you're hiking, uh, you, you can, you know, you're not going to stop and unfold the whole map. So you tend to fold it down until you're seeing only about a, a ninth of the surface. And if you've folded it carefully, you can have another ninth on the backside for you. Well, as you're traveling you may stray off the edge of the map. And you know, you, if you're hiking for a while and you've strayed off the, un, uh, the edge of the map and you don't know it, and you stop and you start you know, trying to find features or you know, he, here's a, a river that I'm beside, I can use that as something to tell me where I am. As you, you put these things together and you start looking at the map and going, so what looks like where I am? And what, you know, okay, okay, here's a river, here's a mountain peak, it's about the right angle, okay, I'm probably right here but you don't realize you've strayed onto another portion of the map and now you're not where you meant to be. Now sometimes that can be an annoyance. You know, you realize like, oh wait, I, I'm back here and I thought I was up there. It's, it's, you know, it's another like mile or two to, to where we were gonna camp and I didn't realize that. Sometimes it can be a major problem. You know, I, I thought I was in the right place and instead I, I went past where I was supposed to turn off and now I'm like five or six miles from where I wanted to be and it's getting cold and dark and you know, I was supposed to connect with another group and, and I'm not gonna be at the, the rendezvous point. We're seeing that sort of problem happening in this text. Uh, you'll notice in verse 10, this statement gets made, the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Then he gives the reason. Both the prophets and the priests are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Uh, the people are evil because they're being led astray by evil prophets, by people that are not leading them in the direction that God is teaching them. You know, if, if they're attempting to orient themselves to the map, and the map is God's law, the prophets are telling them something other than God's law. So it's like they're navigating on the wrong map. And what God is offering as a solution to this is that God is going to give them better guidance, a better guide than their prophets. He's looking to a particular guide, the Messiah, that is going to come and be the better prophet, the one who fulfills what these prophets are failing to do. So let's pray and then we'll move into the text to see what is being promised and, what it is, and how it is going to correct the problem. Lord Jesus, as people that, like the people of old, live in a world with competing visions, uh, competing maps of reality, competing ideas of how to make sense of the world around us, we need your map. We need your scripture, your, your son revealing to us in the word by the spirit uh, what is true. And in order to even look at this passage that talks about that, we need your spirit opening our eyes, not to something extra being inserted into the text, but rather to what is actually present in the text. 
that in order to apply the, the tools that you have built into human language, uh, we need your spirit overcoming our brokenness and making us able to, to navigate, to, to use the compass and map of your word correctly. Enable us as your people to do that this morning by your spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So first, we're going to look at the branch. Uh, the What is being promised? What this better alternative to what the people have is? That's in verses 5 through 8. And then we're going to look at Israel's prophets. And what we're kind of setting up is like, here's the, the, the ideal. And then we're looking at the departure from the ideal and how it is that, that that departure from the ideal is hurting Israel. So first of all, the branch, as we saw, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, as we talk about the, the O antiphons, we might connect this one with um, the, the root of David or the root, the root of Jesse, uh, or the, sorry, the, the shoot. What am I talking about here? The branch of David. Um, does not sound like we're talking about Emmanuel. But as we unpack the problem that he's responding to, we can see that this is an aspect, and this is the thing, these pictures of Messiah, they're not all distinct. They're not like, this covers this idea, and this covers that idea, and they don't have overlap. Well, they're describing the Messiah, who is God come into the world in order to fix Israel's problem, in order to reunite Israel to God, and even bigger than that, to, to reunite all of God's chosen to himself. And so we're going to see overlap as we go through. Um, Messiah does these things that are like ruling, controlling, overcoming the injustice of the world. And we'll look more into Messiah as king in a few weeks. Uh, but he goes on, in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by, by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries to which he had driven him, driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Now, in Israel's history, the departure from Egypt, the Exodus, and specifically God opening the Red Sea to get the people safely through and then destroying the Egyptians as they followed them, is kind of hearkened back to perpetually as the, the biggest and most obvious sign of God's coming to save his people. God, you know, in a very physical and real way, redeeming them from slavery in Egypt and leading them to the promised land. And so over and over as we go through the Old Testament, we see the looking back to this remarkable picture of God's mercy for his people. But he's saying they're going to stop looking back to that because something even bigger is coming. Um, when Abby and I moved to St. Louis for seminary, we arrived in January and, you know, not Many people are going outside their homes in January, and so we're, it, it took until like about April or so before people began coming out, and we start like getting to know our neighbors, starting to, to get to meet people who are natives to St. Louis and get to know something about sort of St. Louis culture. Well, this is um, 06, and the Cardinals, and this is a big part of St. Louis culture, if you're in St. Louis, you root for the Cardinals, or you maybe end up a bloody pulp at the side of the road, but you root for the Cardinals. Well, the Cardinals won the World Series that year. And, you know, there's a, a massive amount of, like, people celebrating and, and rooting. You know, and so we, um, we were watching at a neighbor's house, and we left their house out into the courtyard of the apartments we were in. We could actually hear the fireworks going off downtown from the celebrations following the 06 victory. Well, 
we, we were there for about seven years, and the Cardinals won the World Series again in 2011. But the 2011 World Series, the, the, I think it's the second to the last game. I'm not sure it was actually the last game of the series. But it is, from a technical perspective, actually the most exciting game in World Series history, at least up to that time. Maybe there's been one since. But, you know, the number of times that, like, we were in extra innings, and if no one scored this, this inning, then that would be the end of the game, and yet at the last second someone scored. And now, you know, now if we go into the next inning and the other team, did, oh, and they scored. And so these, I, I was working for a guy that had season tickets and got to be at this, you know, most exciting World Series ending game in history. And the next day, I, I don't think he'd slept. Like, he was so wired when I came to his house. I was doing uh, handiwork for him. He was so wired, he, like, prevented me from doing the work because he wanted to talk about how exciting the game was. Well, after 2011, we didn't talk about the 2006 victory much anymore. The 2011 victory was so significant and so exciting and so, so much of a, you know, a, a part of what it was to be a Cardinals fan. Uh, that we didn't buy, oh yeah, you know, we won in 06, we, we win frequently, we win a lot, but man, let me tell you about the 2011 series. This is what's being talked about here. Uh, we're going to see something that was, is so much bigger, so much more significant than God bringing his people out of Egypt. Rather, he's redeeming his people from all over the world, bringing them back from wherever they've been scattered. So we're seeing in this picture, this, this bigger picture, by the contrast, after setting up that this is going to be a bigger deal, that the, that the Messiah is going to do more, we see then the contrast set up with Israel's prophets. And it's, it's saying here that the Messiah is going to be better than Israel's prophets. He's going to be a better leader to God's people than Israel's prophets. So we're going to dig into what does it mean for the Messiah to be our prophet. Now I want to be careful here. If we're, if we're celebrating... Um, God Emmanuel, Messiah Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, there's much more to that reality of God with us than just the, the prophetic side. When we talk about prophetically, we're starting to talk about Scripture and how Jesus interacts with Scripture in the life of his people. And God with us includes uh, bigger things. Uh, the reality of our union with him by the Holy Spirit. The reality of our experience of him through each other. So there's, there's a lot going on in this concept of Emmanuel. But I'm focusing on Jeremiah 23, and what we're seeing primarily here is this contrast with Messiah as the better prophet, better than Israel's prophets. So many of us are familiar with the idea that Jesus is our prophet. But I want to like dig into, okay, we, we, can, we can connect that to the, you know, the tripartite, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. This has something to do with his word. But practically, what does it mean for Jesus to be our prophet? Um, when I was uh, preparing for ordination, you, you memorize a big chunk of the Shorter Catechism. And as a Presbyterian church, uh, we, we see everything beneath Scripture. But in understanding Scripture, we have a constitution that includes our kind of book of church order, but also uh, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms as, how, as, as a reliable way to understand what the Scripture is telling us. So... In the Shorter Catechism, there is this question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. And the larger catechism obviously goes further. Christ executes the office of a prophet and is revealing to the church in all ages, by his spirit and word, in diverse ways of administration, 
the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Now, when it's saying that the word of God is sufficient for our edification and salvation, it's not saying the Bible is all we need for all things in life. Uh, you're, you know, you're not going to become a great physicist or even a, a competent mechanic with the Bible alone. You need things beyond the Bible for that. But for our salvation, our restoration to God, and for our edification, our growing in Christ-likeness, the word of God is sufficient for that. But for Jesus to be our prophet, it's not just the idea that we've been given the word and then left alone with it. Rather, for us to interact with the word, for us to come to understand what the word means and to apply it to ourselves, we need Jesus speaking through his word, by his Holy Spirit. I, I, I pray some version of this each week as we begin to, to work through the scripture. But it, it's impressed on me that so much of what we're doing in scripture is, it, as we seek to interpret scripture, is we're just applying the tools that any interpreter of documents applies when reading human communication. Uh, you know, as a historian, when I'm reading a historical source, I'm trying to understand the context that the, that the source was written in. I'm trying to understand the perspectives of the people that wrote it. I'm trying to, you know, apply grammatical understanding and all of these tools to understanding this document. But when it comes to scripture, one, it comes from God. So there's a reliability to scripture that goes above and beyond. When I, when I look at a historical document, I'm getting the author's perspective. When I come to scripture, I'm concerned for the author's perspective because God is communicating by that perspective. But I'm also getting God's perspective. But in addition to just the, the source, there's also the reality that for me to actually apply the tools well, for me to, to do my job either as a minister preaching to a congregation or as an individual believer studying God's word, I need the spirit to be overcoming my finiteness and my fallenness as I attempt to warp those tools, as I attempt to figure out ways to get the text to say what I want it to say rather than for it to critique me and change me. And so as we come to a text like this, which is critical of the prophets, critical of the way they're manipulating God's word, we want to apply it to ourselves by saying, am I asking God's word to critique me, to change me? An, an aspect, uh, an application of that, of what we do, I, I grew up in a context where uh, daily devotions were sort of seen as like getting your warm fuzzy for the day. And something about that just rubbed me the wrong way. Because I don't know if I'm just an unemotional person, so I'd read a passage of scripture, wouldn't get a warm fuzzy, be like, what's going on here? Um, I, I had a friend make a point, though, once, like, can you tell me what you had for lunch on June 22nd, 1997? No idea. He said, well, you were nourished by whatever you had for lunch that day. You don't have to remember specifically what it was. Uh, it contributed to your taking in the nourishment you needed to function. Uh, daily devotions are more like that. We're becoming more and more familiar with God's word so that God's word is being imprinted on us so that as we move through life, God's word is shaping how we move through life. I don't come to the word daily in order to get my you know, warm fuzzy for the day and go through my life just you know, feeling all warm and fuzzy. I come to God's word because I'm involved in this discipline process of being conformed to it. And to be conformed to it, I actually need to know what it says. It's kind of like how in our, our culture, you know, remember the, uh, this is probably 20 plus years ago, but the WWJD bracelets? 
Um, they're based on a book where a, a pastor challenged his congregation to before every step they took, every, you know, every decision they made, ask themselves, what would Jesus do? Well, the problem with the book and the problem with the movement was it sort of assumes that we all have the right to decide what Jesus would do. Like on some level, you just innately know what Jesus would really do. And as you go through this, this book, they're making very prudish decisions based on their assumptions about what Jesus would do. Well, if you want to ask what would Jesus do, Jesus shows us in Scripture. Jesus reveals the will of God to us in Scripture. And so while it might be appropriate to ask the question, what would Jesus do? I shouldn't presume that I'm going to be the answer to that. I should rather say Jesus revealed to us in Scripture is the answer to that. And so, so that I can be more conformed to, to even attempting to answer that question, I need the Scriptures. I need repeated application to the Scriptures. Now, furthering that, let's look at the contrast of what's going on as to why Jesus is the better prophet, why Jesus is going to fix the problem the prophets are creating. Uh, look at verses 9 through 11. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because, the Lord, because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil deeds, declares the Lord. Now this is what we noted to begin with. The people are going astray because the prophets and the priests are misleading them. They can't navigate appropriately because they're being given the wrong map. And what we need to note here, the prophets that are being called out here are not the prophets that wrote the Old Testament. Uh, there was a, a, an understood, and, and uh, we, we can see it in Scripture, that there are living people in most of the periods of the Old Testament that are identified as prophets. And these people are supposed to be prophesying the word of God to God's people, and that's where we get the Old Testament. Except, at this point... As we go through Jeremiah, we find out this class of people, the prophets, are telling the people what they want to hear. And this has been an, an ongoing problem. We see this in other prophets, where the prophet is coming saying, look, God is calling for judgment, and you're listening to the prophets that are saying, go and do what you want. And it's, it's very, very significant throughout the period of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah is ministering as Judah not only goes into decline, they're deep in decline by this point, but he's going through their, their last period. Uh, before they are hauled off to exile, and he covers the exile. He goes through the siege of Jerusalem. He sees the, the awfulness of, of the city being laid siege. And throughout this time, the prophets are continuing to say to the people, this is temporary. God's on our side. He's going to fix it. And Jeremiah is saying, God has a harder word for you. God is actually judging Judah at this point. And Judah is wanting to listen to these fake prophets. So God says he'll punish the prophets. Look at verses 12 and verse 15. Therefore their ways, shall not, uh, their ways shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into the land. Uh, it's a... It's a problem that God says he's not going to ignore. The effect of the prophets on God's people is that God's people are going to slip. And as a result, God is going to punish his prophets for misleading the people. Go back to 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. 
They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Now this unsavory, that word, it's the word that we get the English word shudder from. You know, you, you, you see something and you kind of withdraw from it. He's seen this unsavory thing, and the unsavory thing, Samaria, remember, the, the northern kingdom, it's the, the capital city of the, it, it is to the northern kingdom what Jerusalem is to the southern kingdom. So he's, he's talking back, because the prophets of Samaria are no more. The prophets of Samaria were wiped out in 722 B.C., and now we're sometime in the, like, 590s, 580s B.C. Uh, so the northern kingdom, the people that are receiving this know, got wiped out for their insincerity. Uh, for their failure to follow God as his people. And he says, in them I saw an unsavory thing. They were taking as their moral compass Baal. They were conforming to the teaching of the gods of the land. And that is called unsavory. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, the people in front of Jeremiah, I have seen a horrible thing. Not just unsavory, not just something I shudder at, but a horror. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are the two cities that God came to Abraham and said, I've seen their evilness and I'm going to destroy them for that evilness. And he's comparing Jerusalem to these cities that he had to wipe out because of their wickedness. If the prophets are leading Jerusalem, in the, you know, the, the prophets themselves are committing adultery and walking in lies. And when the prophets are misguiding the people, where are the people supposed to turn? How can they get an, an accurate read on what God is calling them to if the prophets are leading them further and further astray? So what I want us to do is think about where is it that we read Scripture what we want to hear where is it that I pursue podcasts or preachers or, or, or sources of teaching where is it that I decide you know I like this book and I don't like that book as much I do my devotions here I don't do my devotions there because I like how the scripture affirms me and I like how the scripture sets me up to feel better about myself as opposed to the scripture critiques me and makes me conform to it rather than conforming itself to me. Look at 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds. Remember, they're supposed to be speaking visions that God has given to them, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Uh, this problem of stubbornly following our own hearts is what this passage is critiquing. Uh, think about the way we come to Scripture. I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, it's easy for me, as a relatively wealthy person, to look at a verse like that, and when I see problems with poverty... I can use that verse to say, well, the problem with poverty is lazy individuals. And if those lazy individuals would just stop being lazy, the problem would go away. And in the process, to ignore a verse or passage like 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, we went through the When Helping Hurts uh, book and are wanting to kind of orient our mercy ministry around the idea of affirming people as image bearers of Christ, uh, enabling and supporting them as they use the resources that God has given them, not just financial resources, but to see them as whole members of the community. But it's very easy to take a, a perspective like that and twist it to say, well, I don't have a responsibility to the poor person. And in that case, and, and honestly, um, churches that are concerned about Scripture and are concerned about that spec perspective, it's very easy to begin to just say, well, I don't have a responsibility to the poor. And to begin to find, you know, we, we, we like to go back to verses like, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat, and let that be kind of a, the Bible's last word for us on dealing with poverty. As opposed to this idea of coming alongside of, uh, seeing the means that we've been given as means to care for others and to help others. Another example of ways that we twist scriptures. Uh, back in 2015, uh, through the rise of ISIS, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis uh, dynamited across the world. And I encountered in uh, kind of engaging with this some on Facebook, which is always a mistake, but um, <clears throat> I encountered someone using this idea. This is 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And the person, and apparently it wasn't just this individual, it was kind of a, a mindset that was coming out in, in responding to the refugee crisis. Well, wait a minute. Look, if a person does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's worse than an unbeliever, it is first and foremost necessary for me to protect my family. And if I think that these Syrian refugees are going to pose a threat to my family, I need to oppose their being helped out. Now, I haven't seen this thinking resurface in the current Afghanistan refugee crisis. But, of course it is true that the scripture is saying that the, the first means of providing for the physical needs of people are his own relatives and the members of his own household. But that doesn't mean that we then get to extend to saying, I'm not going to seek to care for those that I see in need. This is a case where, at least as it was being used in 2015, people were twisting the scripture to get them out of responsibility, uh, to reaffirm their own perspectives that may have just been a result of their political orientations. And again, we need to ask the scripture to critique us. Uh, one that was very poignant to me, Matthew 5, talking about loving our enemies, which is sort of shocking idea. You know, that when, when we say that all religions, you, you, it's popular for people to say, you know, well, all religions teach these same moral ideas, like, you know, being good to people that are good to you and that kind of thing. Well, it's shocking when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Romans 12, Paul says that you should do good for those who, who injure you so that you might heap burning coals on their head. Now, what he means by heaping burning coals on their head isn't getting them back. It means reversing their position them going, wait a minute, my enemy is caring for me and loving me. Well, as a young youth minister, there was a guy that had become involved in our youth group in North Carolina who was really, really gifted in human relationships. But because of the nature of the way he'd been brought up, he'd been 
stuck in a lot of cases where he had to defend himself and care for himself. And he began using that gifting he had with human relationships to manipulate the people around him to get what he wanted. And I was watching as he manipulated our youth group and put everyone against everyone so he could always be the buddy that was coming around being your friend when everyone else is against you. And I'm watching him tear apart our youth group. And I'm having this mindset of going, God, just like, he's relatively transient. Just get this guy to move on. Like, get him to take this, you know, garbage that he's doing and go somewhere else with it. And I came across Matthew 5 and Romans 12, and I start trying to apply that to myself. And I'm going, I see this guy as my enemy. And I'm asking God to just get my enemy out of the picture. And if that's my mindset, I'm not going to love this guy. I'm not going to connect with this guy. And consequently, as one of the people that God has placed in his life as an opportunity to be a conduit of grace, I'm going to deny him that opportunity. And it was a person that really irritated me and that I had a really hard time spending time with. And I began every time I had a free lunch calling him and seeing if he had time to meet for lunch. And we began hosting him over at night. And we began really trying to say, this is going to be our friend, not our enemy. And I began to watch, and I'm not saying it was just my input, but it was over time of his involvement in our church, he began to shift to where he stopped using his relational abilities to thwart the people around him and began using them to lead the people around him. And he went on and it, he went on to be a, a member in a, a friend's church. He, you know, he'd moved across the country by this point and was a pillar in that church plant and was helping to pull together a church as it went through difficult times because God was using the abilities that he'd been given that he'd been using for evil for good. And that happened in part because God critiqued me with Scripture and said, you're trying to find the passages that reaffirm, you know, you, you need to protect your youth group and, and get this guy out of the way. No, I need to love my enemy. There is a, a mindset in um, Bible-believing churches that wants to look at passages like Genesis 2, where God puts Adam and Eve together, or passages like Ephesians 5, where it gives directions to husbands and directions to wives, that wants to see the family as normative for Christian society that wants to say Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and that plan is to put you in a family and to in your family make this picture of the gospel and there's there's a lot of good things that we can draw from scripture and a lot of correct things that we can say there but when we elevate to normative what we might better say is normal it happens a lot it's common but normative means it applies to everyone it's the same for everyone what we're beginning to say is to the singles that are part of our churches that there's something wrong with them, that God's not speaking to them, that in some way they have missed this opportunity to actually be this picture that we see as normative in Scripture. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is very, very much a proponent of singleness, even to the exclusion of marriage in some cases. And in circles that get very into the family as normative, we have to look at Paul and twist Paul and say, well, Paul's dealing with, with other things and he's not clearly speaking to us. He's just speaking to his own context in some way that doesn't apply to us. And that's corrupting scripture. And that's failing to allow the critique of scripture to say, God calls his church to be the family. And that whether you are single or married, whether you have children or do not have children, 
you are still part of that family of God and are the portion of the picture that God is making of himself among us, his image bearers. And so we need to be very, very careful as we come to Scripture to be critiqued by, to be conformed to Scripture, not to just use Scripture to make me feel good about where I'm coming from. Now look back again at verse 8. When he says that what's going to happen as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where I have driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. He goes from there to do this long critique of Israel's prophets that are failing them. Uh, we don't look at that critique of Israel's prophets and then say, well, then we'd better read the scripture right. We'd better look at those techniques and tools and by the power of our will, get it right. To say that Messiah is going to be a better prophet is also to say that Messiah is the means by which we apply the scripture to ourselves. That something more is needed than what Israel has. And in, in the coming chapters, he's going to look to the new covenant. And the fact that Messiah is going to come and Messiah is going to make effective what Israel failed to do. That Messiah, by uniting us to him by the Holy Spirit, by coming to the word of God revealed in Christ, as the church, humbly reading the word together, calling the spirit to apply the word to us. It's not that we're going to, by the force of our will, get it right. It's rather that God is going to apply it to us by Jesus, by the Messiah, by God with us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come needing you to do in us what your word says you will do. We know that we want to contort scripture, to turn scripture into the sources of warm fuzzies so I can feel good about myself and my life and my perspective. And instead, you call us to be changed by your word. But we can't do that without your spirit uniting us to you as we encounter you in each other, in your church. Make us a community that goes to the uncomfortable places with your word, that by your spirit produces change in us and makes us those who have received God with us in our midst by your action. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's sing in response, O little town of Bethlehem.